Good morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Uh, this is the second part of a three-part series on the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage. So let's read our passage this morning, and then we will uh, open in prayer. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. God, I confess this morning, this is a very difficult passage. So we definitely need your help, your illumination, to be led by your spirit. For your word to speak today. The reality of divorce. It's a terrible thing. It's a very difficult and complex thing. And God, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need your wisdom and your love and your care and your compassion. Of how we as a church. Minister to those that are hurting and struggling in this particular area. And how we as a church, as we do that, come underneath the authority and the sufficiency and the truth of your word. So would you help us today, God, be glorified and minister to the hearts of your people in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the last time we were together, we focused on the beautiful gift of marriage. As John Piper says, marriage is indeed the doing of God and the display of God. In marriage, we have the wonderful gifts of companionship and friendship and sexual intimacy, the blessing of children and the foundation of mankind fulfilling the creation mandate that we see in Genesis Chapter one, and even greater than all these things, as wonderful as they are, marriage is the earthly display of the covenant 
keeping love of God for his people. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church, his people, is the bride. This is why we should say marriage is first and foremost about the holiness of God, the glory of God, and then our joy or happiness. Today, we must discuss the reality of divorce, the breaking of the covenant of marriage. As great as marriage is, we understand we live in a fallen and broken world where divorce exists. Sadly, over half our marriages in American culture end in divorce. Because of sin, because of the hardness of man's heart, we have divorce. As a church, we cannot deny that divorce happens and we must have a loving response to divorce. The first response this morning that we must have as a church is to come alongside divorced people. We must weep and grieve with them. Psalm 6, 6, the psalmist says, every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye waste away because of grief. Divorce, you see, brings much sorrow and loss and tragedy. There's feelings of disappointment and anger and regret and guilt. Few things are more painful than divorce. For those of us who either haven't been divorced or we haven't grown up in a family that has experienced divorce, it's only by the grace of God. And we should be very, very thankful as I said last time, divorced people are in no way, shape, or form second-class citizens in the kingdom. We are all on the same team in Jesus Christ. We're striving together to glorify the Lord in the midst of this fallen and broken world. There's a second response that we as a church must have to divorce, and I will be honest. This one's a lot harder. We must lovingly articulate a biblical hatred for divorce. Malachi 2.14 says God hates divorce, and so should we. It is against the will of God, and we should do all that we can biblically to keep it from happening in our church and in our families. Who this morning wants to see one of their children or grandchildren go through the devastation of Divorce. I know I do not. John Piper states, preserving the solid framework of the marriage covenant with high standards, it may feel tough now, but it produces 10,000 blessings for future generations. May there never be another divorce within the life of Everglades Baptist Church or in our families. That should be the cry of our hearts this morning in our prayers. Now, as we continue to lay the groundwork for our message today, which question should we be asking? Should we, like the Pharisees in Mark 10 to ask, when is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Or when is it permissible to divorce? Is that really the best question that we should be asking? Or is it better 
that we should be asking this morning, how can I glorify God the most in my marriage and in the difficult situations that we may find ourselves in? Now, we must understand on the front end that this is a very, very difficult and complex topic. Because of the sin and the fallenness of our world, there are thousands of difficulties that married couples face every single day. Are there any circumstances where divorce is biblical? Is it permissible to divorce when one loses his feelings for his wife? Is it permissible to divorce a wife who is unwilling to have children? Is it permissible to divorce a husband who is a deadbeat and doesn't work or provide? Is it permissible biblically to divorce a spouse who is in a tragic car accident and is disabled for life and you now become their lifetime caregiver? Is it permissible to divorce a wife who is hooked on drugs and alcohol and constantly wastes the family's money? Is it permissible to divorce a husband who is caught stealing and will be in jail for 25 years? Is it permissible to divorce a wife who is verbally and mentally abusive to her children? Is it permissible to divorce a husband who is abusive? Is it permissible to divorce a spouse that is caught in adultery? How about if that adultery is a spouse that's constantly looking at pornography every night? Is it permissible to divorce a spouse who is there but not really there? No feelings of affection, no time together, no life together, just coexisting. And you see this morning, I could go on and on and on. Welcome to the fallen world that we live in. Man, this is hard. I told Mandy, this is probably the hardest message I've ever preached in my life. Everglades Baptist Church, we must remember, we are not guided by circumstances, as difficult as they may be, but by the truth of God's word. Therefore, my aim today and next week with much love and much humility, this is not about winning an argument in any way, shape or form, is to show the following biblical truths that I believe with all of my heart. But I'll tell you on the front end, what I'm going to share with you today is the minority position when it comes to marriage. God's design for marriage has always been and will always be permanence. The one flesh union created in marriage is permanent until death. Number two, the only way the marriage covenant biblically is to be broken is by death. Number three, initiating a divorce is never lawful biblically. And number four, divorce and remarriage, as Jesus states in Mark 10, is an act of adultery if a former spouse is living. Now, I shared with you, that's the minority position. John Piper, Buddy Balcom hold, hold this particular position of the permanence of marriage. I believe they're right. If I didn't believe it was right, I wouldn't be preaching it to you today. I'm indebted to those brothers. I've listened to their sermons over and over the last 25 years. I've read their papers. But there are also godly men like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul that hold a semi-permanence position of marriage. They do believe that there are 
one or two exceptions, which we'll look at those passages over the next two weeks. I have much respect for those men, but I don't line up with where they land. But I've listened to their sermons. I've read their papers. Truth number one this morning. God's design for marriage is permanence. Marriage is a lifelong permanent covenant that is never to be broken. Go back to Mark chapter 10. Let's get back to the text. Mark 10, 6 through 9. We read this last time. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I really laid this out last time. But just to review, Mark 10, 6 through 9. As the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus or trap him, here's how he responds. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Because marriage is God's divine institute, only God can break a marriage and not man. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. If you'll turn there. This is not a passage we've looked at yet. Hebrews 13, 4 and 5. See, marriage is a creation ordinance divinely instituted by God. We've seen it in Genesis. We've seen it in the Gospels. We've seen it in Ephesians 5. And now we come to Hebrews 13, verses 4 and 5. And God's word says, says this, excuse me. Let marriage be held in honor among all. May we hold marriage in honor. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus never, never never leaves his people. We just sung that. Rachel, thank you for that song this morning of our God, his steadfast love endures forever and he keeps all of his promises and marriage is a picture, a reflection of the love of Jesus for his people. As John Piper argues, when Christ divorces his church, then the Christian would be free to divorce. That's never going to happen. Marriage in God's design is permanent. Truth number two. The only way the marriage covenant is broken is by death. Go to Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 3. Romans 7, 1 through 3.
Romans 7, 1 through 3. Pastor Jim's already preached this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The marriage covenant is broken by death. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 39 and 40. Sorry, we're going to be flipping a lot more than normal this morning. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 through 40, just allowing Scripture to speak for itself. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 and 40. Right after the book of Romans, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord it has to be a believer in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. By the way, singleness is a gift from the Lord. Being single is not sinful. Being single is not bad. Being single is not wrong. Paul is celebrating that in this passage. That for some, singleness, it's a gift from the Lord to be about the kingdom in that way. We don't have time to go there, but Matthew 22, 23 through 30 is where the Sadducees... We're trying to say, you know, if a woman was married and her husband died and then she married another and then he died and married another and he died, I think it was like seven different times, whose wife would she be in heaven? Well, they were wrong in their thinking. Why? Because Jesus made it clear in that passage, earthly marriages are only lifelong on earth, not in eternity, okay? Not in the new heavens and the new earth. There are no human marriages in heaven. Why? Because we're only married to Jesus. He's the bridegroom. We are the bride. So one is free biblically to remarry, if they so choose, after the death of a spouse. The Bible gives freedom, gives liberty, if one so chooses to do that, and they would not be in sin. The third truth this morning Initiating a divorce is never lawful biblically. Go back to Mark chapter 10, our text, Mark chapter 10. Verses 10 through 12. So we've seen the permanence of marriage, that it can only be broken by death. Jesus continues on here, Mark 10. 10 through 12, as he's talking with the disciples. And in the house, 
the disciples asked him again about this matter. They're like, okay, we, are we understanding you rightly, Jesus, about the permanence here of marriage? And then look at how Jesus responds to the disciples. These are his words. Verse 11, he says unto them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Go to Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Another account that we have in the Gospels. Luke 16, verse 18. Jesus says this, Luke 16, 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It's never lawful biblically to initiate a divorce. Truth number four. And this kind of goes with truth three. Divorce and remarriage is an act of adultery if a former spouse is living. Go back to Mark 10. Verses 10 through 12. I'll read verses 11 and 12 again in Mark 10. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It's an act of, and I say an act, we'll talk about that in a minute, an act of adultery. This is why as a pastor, I can't perform a second marriage for someone that's still, their spouse is still living. I can't do that in good conscience. Conscience, it doesn't mean that I hate anybody. It doesn't. I mean, I, I'm not caring and empathetic to what someone's going through, but I, I can't go against God's word and my conscience. So now, are there exceptions that allow for divorce and remarriage? Because some of you are probably saying, Pastor Eric, I know that there are exception clauses in the scripture. I know that they're there and you have not mentioned them. There was a reason. Here's my reasoning. We are going to go there this week and next week, okay? Because you have to, because the Word of God goes there. We have started with the clear teaching of Scripture that marriage is permanent by God's design. It has always been that way from the beginning of creation. It's a creation ordinance. Earthly marriages are to be pictures of Christ in the church. Christ never divorces his church. The traditional wedding vows I mentioned last time, by the way, are permanent vows. And as I mentioned last time, if you're not going to hold to a permanent view of marriage, then whatever exceptions that you have before the Lord, put those in your vows, right? Before the Lord. This is the biblical lens. That I'm looking through when interpreting the passages that we are about to look at. All right, let's go back to Mark 10, 2 through 5. We covered this a little bit last time, but just in way of review, Mark 10, 2 through 5. 
Jesus has gone down to Judea. It's almost time for his crucifixion. He's heading to Jerusalem. The Pharisees in verse 2, once again, they come up to him in order to test him. And they're asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? That's the question that's on the table. Jesus answers them as he normally would with a question. What did Moses command you? And I wonder in this, they're probably thinking Deuteronomy 24. I think Jesus is thinking Genesis 1 and 2 because Moses wrote both of them. First five books of the Bible. They say, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they go to Deuteronomy 24. But then verse 5, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And then Jesus, we've already read 6 to 9. He goes to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Now, we have to go to Deuteronomy 24. We didn't really do this last time. Because I told you last time. I really just wanted to celebrate the beautiful gift of marriage, okay? Honestly, that message was a lot easier. Because marriage is such a wonderful and good gift of the Lord. Divorce is such a tragic and terrible thing. But it's the reality of the broken world we live in. So Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So this is where the Pharisees went, okay? This is a case law, by the way. Okay, this is a response to because there is divorce, there has to be instruction. How do you move forward? When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And remember, we talked about Shema, Hillel. What does indecency mean? He writes her a certificate of divorce. He puts it in her hand. He sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. If she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So this passage is describing a case law about a certain situation. Basically, all this passage is saying is that when one divorces his wife and she marries another, and then either he divorces her or he dies, the first husband can't take her again as his wife because she would now be defiled or unclean. It would be an abomination before the Lord. This is not God commanding divorce, but instead God giving instruction after a divorce takes place. He's really providing protection for women, because if you think about if they could just be divorced for whatever, which is what was happening, then these women are left to themselves to fend for themselves of being destitute. It would allow them as far as to remarry. It was a case law to give guidelines for women that were suffering injustice so that they wouldn't be destitute when divorce did happen. Basically, you think of it this way. The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. But when one steals, what do we do next? What's the consequence? How does restitution going to happen? And we know what the Ten Commandments say, but sadly, we break the Ten Commandments, right? 
And then, okay, what are the case laws of how you move forward now that the commandments have been broken? That doesn't mean that the commandments were wrong. That doesn't mean that we don't follow the commandments on the front end. But because of our sin, when these commandments are broken, what is next? Now, the exception clauses in the Gospel of Matthew. So turn to Matthew. We haven't gone there yet. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And I'll go ahead and tell you, we're not going to get to 1 Corinthians 7 this time. We'll go, we'll go there next time. Which deals with abandonment, but we're going to talk about adultery this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Now, before I read this passage, this is really important as Bible students. You must keep in mind, Matthew is writing to a mainly Jewish audience, while Mark and Luke, who did not include the exception clauses, were writing to a mainly Greco-Roman audience. Context matters. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. What does Jesus say here? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I, so he's referencing Deuteronomy 24, but as Jesus would do on the Sermon of the Mount, he'd always up the ante. The standard was always higher. What does he say in verse 32? But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And, what, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, before I comment, let's go to Matthew 19. Because he's going to say basically the same thing in Matthew 19. A little bit different context. The first one's the Sermon on the Mount. That was his first public sermon. They're gathered up on this mount, the disciples and the people around. Matthew 19, this is the parallel passage to the Mark 10, where the Pharisees are coming to test Jesus, they're trying to put him in a tough situation. Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. I'm not going to read 1 through 7 because it's basically the same thing that we read in Mark chapter 10. Okay, it's a parallel passage. But look at the response in Matthew 19, 8 and 9. He said unto them, so he's talking to these Pharisees, because of your hardness of heart. So by the way, divorce happens because of the hardness of heart. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. We've already talked about that. Verse 9, I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, there's the exception clause, and marries another commits adultery. All right. So we have to go there, right? Why are there exception why is there this exception clause in Matthew, but it's not in Mark and Luke? I mean, that's a, a real good question. And there is a biblical answer. Because some may be saying, okay, my spouse is unfaithful, therefore I can divorce them biblically. Well, let's see. Here's some things you're going to have to think about. Okay, number one, why does Matthew include the exception clause, whereas Mark and Luke do not? We must allow clear passages to help us understand more difficult ones. Number two, we have to look at the Greek word usage. 
In each case, in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, the Greek word for sexual immorality. So when you look back at verse 9 there, Matthew 19, since that's the one that we're in. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. That's fornication. Some translations use that word. That's sexual sin before marriage. It's a very broad term. It's the term we get porneia from. That's the Greek word. Okay? So he's not talking about sexual sin within marriage, but before marriage. That's the term that's used. Whereas the end of verse 9, and marries another commits adultery. It's the different Greek word. It's the Greek word mochia. That is specific sexual sin, adultery, when you are married. There's there's two different Greek words there. It's the same in Matthew 5 as it is in Matthew 19. Okay? You, You have to wrestle with that. Why would Jesus use two different Greek words? Third thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus always increases the standard. You've heard it said, but I say unto you, the conservative Jews already, the Shema, already believed in divorce, remarriage for adultery. Jesus is not saying the same standard that the conservative Jews would have already said. Jesus always set the standard higher. Number four. If Jesus made marriage permanent from the beginning, the creation ordinance, why would he now make biblical grounds for it not to be permanent? Number five, the reaction of the disciples to the high standard of Jesus. Look at verse 10. Go to Matthew 19, verse 10. Look at how they respond to what Jesus is teaching. The disciples said unto him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They're like, Jesus, this is such a high standard. It would be better to not even marry. I mean, they're they're blown away by the words of Christ. And then finally, go to Matthew 5, 27 through 28. And again, let me say this. There are biblical men, John MacArthur, Ashley Sproul, that hold to these exception clauses. Okay, they have their, their biblical reasons of doing that. So it's not about winning an argument. I'm just telling you, for me, such marriage is meant to be permanent. Look at Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. Look at what Jesus says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the commandments, right? One of the Ten Commandments. But look at what Jesus says in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. By the way, that's probably 99.9% of us in this room. So if you're going to believe that adultery is biblical grounds for you to divorce and remarry, what do you do with that passage? What do you do with that passage of how Jesus defines adultery all the way to the core of his heart? Let me be the first to confess, 
I am guilty of the sin of adultery the way that Jesus defines it in Matthew 5, 28. And with that being said, Mandy would have every right biblically then to divorce me. If you're going to hold to that exception clause, you got to wrestle with that, folks. Now, if Jesus is not saying adultery is biblical grounds for divorce, then what in the world is he saying? Okay, that, that has to be the next question. It's like, okay, Pastor Eric, if you're going to tell us all this, you've got to land the plane somewhere. Of where, where do you land of what's your biblical reasoning for why you hold such a high conviction for the permanence of marriage? Well, here you go. And at the end of the day, I'll say this on the front end. I may stand before a holy God one day and you may say, Pastor Eric, you are absolutely dead wrong. And I'll be held accountable before the Lord God Almighty. But I, I have wrestled with this, Pastor Doug, for 25 years. You gave me this paper right here in my driveway at my parents' house 25 years ago when you were in seminary. And as young pastors, we were having to wrestle through where are we going to land on this issue? This is a paper entitled Divorce and Remarriage, Pursuing the Right Question. And I have read this over and over. Like I know some of you guys, you're all in the end times and where you land on that position. And I'm like, okay, I see three, four different things of where it possibly could be on the end times position. But this is one of those things where I have wrestled and I have wrestled and I have studied and I have wrestled. And by the grace of God, I've landed with the biblical convictions that I have. I can't in good conscience counsel anyone in here or anyone that comes to me to divorce. I can't do it. I'm going to counsel you to, to fight for your marriage with everything that you have. Yet understanding divorce does happen sometimes. And I'm still going to love you. And I'm still going to care for you. And I know Pastor Jim and Pastor Doug would say the same thing. All right, let's land the plane. Which will take me about 10 minutes. So let me say that. <laughs> Jesus is addressing the betrothal period of Jewish marriages in Matthew. At the time of Jesus, betrothal was typically understood as the first stage of marriage in the Jewish culture. It would typically last up to a year and it would culminate with sexual consummation on the wedding night. Both families had come to an agreement and the man and the woman were legally married even though no wedding ceremony or sexual relations had taken place yet. It's kind of like when we get engaged today, but it's a lot more. Okay, when you get engaged to someone today, you're making a promise, you're making a commitment, but there's no legal binding in that. The betrothal period, there was a legal bonding. You were legally married, even though there hadn't been the, the wedding ceremony and there had not been sexual relations. D.A. Carson says this, the pledge to be married was legally bonding, excuse me, binding during the betrothal. Only death or divorce could break it and sexual immorality was biblical grounds for divorce during the betrothal period. What's the biblical example you may ask? 
Well, it's Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Mary and Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. And by the way, there are other passages where the betrothal was mentioned. We'll look at one in 1 Corinthians 7 next week. But Matthew 1, 18 through 21. Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. We've read this passage a thousand times, but maybe you've never thought about this before. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, legally pledged to be married, before they came together, before the consummation of the wedding night, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Apart from the Immaculate Conception, how, in the, how is the only way that Mary could be with child? She had been unfaithful. She had committed sexual immorality in the betrothal. It goes on to say, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he didn't want to publicly put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, which biblically he had the right to do. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was going to take an angel of the Lord to make this clear to Joseph that this was of God, of what had happened. Guys, I could be wrong, but this just makes the most biblical sense to me. Everything that I know about Scripture, this is the minority position. But I, I've wrestled with it for 25 years. I'm not going to say I'm not going to budge or ever change, but probably not. Because I, I have dug in on this one over and over and over. Now, next week, we'll continue to tackle the issue of divorce and remarriage regarding abandonment by an unbelieving spouse in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's the conclusion. Marriage by God's design is meant to be permanent. It can only be broken by God, which occurs at the death of one of the spouses. Therefore, initiating a divorce is never biblically lawful. Remarriage after divorce is an act of adultery if a former spouse is living. However, and this is really important, don't tune me out. Divorce and remarriage is not a perpetual or a continual sin of adultery, but it is an initial act of adultery. We'll talk more about that next week. Once a new marriage covenant is established, the old one is broken. So if you've been married a second time or a third time or a fourth time, you're not continually living in adultery. That's important to understand. We'll unpack it more next week. God in his grace, praise the Lord for his grace, right? He has blessed many second marriages and many third marriages. So please hear me say that. Because I know some of you have been divorced and you have been remarried and you're experiencing the blessing and the goodness and the grace of God in that. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Right. And if you're here this morning and you haven't been divorced, it's only by the grace of God. Neither one is better. It's 
only by God's grace. But I would say this to those that are in their second or third marriage. You should be faithful to the vows that you have now made before the Lord and be faithful in the marriage that you are currently in for the glory of God. Divorcing a current spouse to remarry a former spouse or divorcing regardless would be sinful. It would be wrong. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Two sins don't make a right. You don't divorce your current spouse to go back to a former spouse. Because by the way, that would go against Deuteronomy 24 that we read earlier. But now let me say this. Just because divorce and remarriage are forgivable sins, that does not mean that we do them. As the Apostle Paul excuse me, says in Romans 6, should we sin so that grace abounds? God forbid. May it never be. Malachi 2.14. I didn't say this. God said this. I hate divorce. That's what God says in the scriptures. The exception falls in the gospel of Matthew regarding adultery is explained best by holding the betrothal view of the text. Legal Jewish marriages that have not been fully consummated with the wedding ceremony, the wedding night. I end with the question that I started with. What will bring God the most glory in our marriages? And ultimately, that's the question for every area of our life. Our parenting, our friendships, our workplaces. What brings God the most glory? This should always be the question on our hearts. Not, is divorce permissible? That's not the question. Christian, our marriages, first and foremost, are about the glory and the holiness of God. We are a reflection of Christ and the church. There's never a time when Christ will divorce his people and therefore we should not divorce our spouses. We must be true to the vows that we make at the marriage altar. We are always to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We are always to love our spouses as Christ loves the church. We are always to love our neighbors as ourselves. And by the way, your spouse is your closest neighbor. We are also to love our enemies. And even if your spouse is an unbeliever, even if they're an enemy of the cross, love your enemies. But Pastor Eric, you don't understand how bad it is. You're right. I'm not in your shoes. I don't understand your situation. But I know this, the same power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that brings a dead heart to life in Christ. It's the same power that saves us. And it's the same power that can resurrect a dead marriage or a marriage that's on life support. Amen. I believe that with all my heart. And I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen marriages that were corrupt. Filled with adultery. And God got the heart of those spouses. Of those couples. And he changed them from the inside out. And they're happily married today. For the glory of God. I've seen it. I've seen the other two. I've had people walk out of the office. I'm done. I'm not going through it. I've seen that too. But I'm just telling you. For the glory of God. You can live out the gospel. I can't guarantee you anything. Of what God may choose to do. But I can tell you this. As for me and my house. 
we will serve the Lord. And I can tell you this, that God's word is true. It's, a, it's authoritative and it's sufficient. And it's what we must live by as a church. So yes, we are to have caring, loving, sympathetic hearts for those that are struggling in this area. But we also hold to a biblical view of marriage. Let's stand together and we'll pray. God, we thank you for today. The one thing I do know is Pastor Jim reminds us any passages that were read this morning, God, that's the truth of your word. That's your revelation. And I'm thankful for that, that your word is true and that your word goes forth and that God, your word accomplishes what you set it out to accomplish. Lord, anything that I may have said that was wrong, Lord, forgive me. And God, etch it out. But the truth of your word, it's truth. Sanctify us, God. Lord, you know the heart of every single person in here. You know the state of every marriage. You know every young person in here that's not even married, but the thoughts and the things that may be going through their heart and their head and their mind. God, be glorified. God, minister your gospel. There may be someone here this morning, Lord, that's first and foremost in need of Christ, in need of salvation, in need of forgiveness. The power of the gospel bringing their dead heart to life. I pray today, God, that you would grant repentance and faith. Save someone today, Lord, for your glory and honor. And then, Father, maybe there's a marriage that's in desperate, desperate need of the gospel. Ultimately, God, all of our marriages are. God, you do the work that only you can do. God, help us to cling to you like we never had before. Help us to be loving. Help us to be kind. Help us to be filled with truth as we think about the beautiful, beautiful gift of marriage. And it's in the wonderful name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord through song. Finish with God on the mountain. 